And I think one of the most powerful impacts of residential schools is silence. The fact that we don't talk about it. When I was growing up, virtually every single relative I had had either attended residential schools or was an intergenerational survivor, and nobody talked about it. Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Kona Nitsigasun Mistai Sagaiga Noche, Toronto, Maganawigan. This is Kona Gule, Head Indigenous Equity and Inclusion at BMO Financial Group. In our last episode, we talked to Dr. Negon Sinclair, Professor in Native Studies and Head of the Native Studies Department at the University of Manitoba about the history of the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation and what this day means. Today, we are going to dive a little deeper on where Canada might be on the path of truth and reconciliation, what more needs to be done, and what progress we've seen so far. Tawau and Ninanaskaman, Dr. Sinclair, for speaking with us today. Bonjour, Kona. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Following the discoveries of unmarked graves at previous residential school sites across the country, many people are seeking answers and trying to understand this part of our history as a country. But for most Canadians, when they hear talk of residential schools, they still think only of the past. However, there are ongoing present-day impacts. Can you say more about this? Yeah, I mean, every single thing in Canadian society comes from uh, residential schools or the ideas that went into residential schools. So when you buy a house, for example, you'll get uh, a deed and that deed comes from a method that Canada used to claim the land. And that goes back to the 1763 Royal Proclamation where the king said, all the land is mine and people may live there till I arrive, then I will purchase off them off a, a price of my own choosing and that will extinguish their land claim and then I will put them on a reserve. And then of course, the logical next step to that, as I mentioned before, is to take the children and teach them that everything about the king and the crown and Canadian society is pristine and perfect, and they should aspire to become those civilized ideas. So that goes back to ideas that are several hundred years old, quite racist in their doctrine, and still today continue to be perpetrated on the deed when you buy your house. So when you buy your house, you can say, oh, well, this is here because of the crown's idea which relates to residential school in that that's the very idea that perpetrated the harm that I can see today. So if you're in any Canadian city and you look around and you say, who are experiencing the most amount of poverty? Who are those who are in the jails the most? Who are those who are experiencing the most addiction, mental health crises? Who are those who were removed the most into the child welfare system? It's most often indigenous peoples in almost every single city in this country because of residential schools. So whether Canadians want to see that as a challenge to themselves, here's the challenge, is that we can either help 
our, our brothers and sisters in our communities and our cities by saying, how do we want to pay for this legacy, this uh, intergenerational legacy by building more jails or helping other human beings to heal from the violence that resulted in me being able to have a house? Because people were removed off every single inch of these lands in this country in order for Canadians to have A, a house to live in, B, an economy to live in, C, this bounty, these resources which build the economy of every single life of every single Canadian comes from the ideas that went into residential schools. So you can see the outcome of that in the poverty and the addiction and the pain that Indigenous peoples continue to suffer from disproportionately more than anybody else in this country. And we can either do that by helping people deal with it because you have benefited from that pain. Every Canadian has. There are many Canadians who want that system to be maintained. Unfortunately, it is unsustainable. It is also not right. It is also genocidal to maintain a system that is so violent. And I don't want to live in a society where violence is perpetrated on a daily basis. I hope others feel the same. In fact, that's what Canada purports itself to be. So why don't we live up to the very name of Canada, which, by the way, invested by Indigenous peoples, invented by Indigenous peoples. Kanada means the village. The power of the village is that we all live together. Nobody's going anywhere. So if we have harms here... We all suffer from the harms. We all pay for the harms and we all can be part of the solutions to those harms. You've talked about it in our conversation, but residential schools were one aspect of Canadian government policies and practices that attempted to assimilate Indigenous peoples. Can you say a little about what other policies and practices have had significant impacts on Indigenous peoples? Well, the most devastating one has been the misuse of the treaties, which created the reserve system. So the reserve system is the system that has to blame for many of the poverty today because it's governed by the Indian Act, which bans economic abilities of Indigenous communities to be sovereign or be independent. It doesn't allow for Indigenous communities to be able to, for instance, have an economy or be able to create jobs or have businesses because it makes illegal the ability for a First Nation to be able to make its own decisions. All the decisions for a First Nation take place in Ottawa. If you want to build a building or start a business or get some kind of independence in some way, 99% of the time you have to go to Ottawa to get permission of it. Many First Nations through various court settlements have small pockets of money here and there, but most of their funding still relies on a top-down approach from Ottawa, which is created out of the reserve system. So the Indian Act, which governs that system, makes sure that it's still illegal here in 2021, is the problem in the first place, needs to be replaced. The Indian Act was for the purposes of getting rid of Indians was eradicating them, civilizing them, turning it so that we don't have any more First Nations communities in the country. That was the goal of the king way back in 1763 when he created the idea of the reserves. We'll put them off to the side till they can be shepherded into becoming my loyal subjects. And the problem, of course, is that Indigenous peoples do not want to become loyal subjects. We're going to find any single reason to fight that, to resist that, to express our sovereignty and independence. And that's as much the conflict you can see today, which you see in marches, when you see national chiefs or, you know, even Métis people who are basically denied out of the Indian Act, which is another problem in in that we have different ways that we treat Indigenous peoples in this country. Some are under the Indian Act, some are not. And so what you create is this very uneven response to Indigenous peoples. Instead of the uh, spirit and the intent of the treaties, which originally was intended for us to share the land, 
not to have some people pushed off to the side in the bathroom of the house while the, while others come in and, and enjoy the bounty and the resources available in that house. Can you imagine what it would be like to live with someone if you were forced to live in a bathroom or a closet on a little foot by foot square and you had a person who was outside that closet saying, you're never allowed to come out and if you try to come out, I'll hurt you. That's the Indian agent, which is another policy that came out of the Indian Act and the way Canada's treatment of Indigenous peoples was that they had a crown representative on every single community which controlled movement, which refused people to be allowed to move around freely like most Canadians would have happily done if you wanted to go to the store, for example, or go hunting or fishing or or simply go down and create a business. The Indian agent would stop you make sure that you had uh, you were under the draconian control of the community you could certainly never do ceremonies and even speak your language in public or if two people were in public that were seen as committing some kind of sense of organizing a revolution or resistance movement or are conspiring to fight the Indian agent in some way they could be arrested by the police that's kind of the stuff we saw in the Gestapo in Nazi times in Germany but it was on every day in First Nations. In fact, Nazi Germany looked to see the way that Hitler was a great had great affinity towards the way in which Canada treated Indian people and based that on how he treated Jewish people in Germany. There are many different other policies that I could describe to you. Some of them are just absolutely inane. The Gradual Civilization Act, for example, had this principle that Indigenous peoples had to uh, evolve in the same way non-Native peoples evolved. So they weren't allowed to use farming implements, even though they were competing against Canadian farmers who were using oxen and plows. But Indigenous peoples had to do all that by hand. In the 1920s, Indigenous peoples were banned from writing letters complaining about their treatment because what happened after World War I is so many veterans came back and saw they'd experienced equality while fighting in the, in the trenches in Europe. And then when they came back, they realized that Indigenous peoples were never being treated equally or with any sense of equity or the treaties were never meant to be that way. So they started writing letters and these veterans were eventually told you can't write any letters anymore. So you're banned from writing letters. You had to hand your letters to the Indian agent and the Indian agent would hand on your letters to the minister, which I'm sure happened, you know. <laughs> absolutely absurd law. We were banned from hiring lawyers for advocating for land claims. We were controlled dress in public. It was illegal to be wearing your traditional regalia in public because you were seen as acting uncivilized. There are hundreds of other examples and as you can see you can become quite overwhelmed with all the descriptions of the ways in which Indigenous peoples have been controlled have been banned and treated much in the ways in which those throughout the world, people in Nazi Germany or South Africa had been treated. Things that we abhor and ban and shake our finger at as Canadians, but have happened right here. And the legacies that are happening much are still the same ideas that exist in Canadian society today. More broadly, where do you see Canada on the path of truth and reconciliation? What more needs to be done? And could you speak to what progress you have seen? Yeah, I mean, there are some remarkable things that have happened in the past two decades that I never thought was going to happen in my lifetime. You know, we see more Indigenous peoples entering into mainstream institutions than ever before. Most of us are still the first, first from our community, first of our family to enter a profession, first Indigenous person, sometimes in an entire field, like the case of my father, first Indigenous judge in Manitoba history. 
and that's only a couple decades ago. Now there are many different judges that have come into Manitoba. The interesting thing is when Indigenous peoples enter into a field, we're most often looking for how can we bring others? How can we open the door for others? And so it's kind of our communal mentality. It comes from our culture, it comes from our language, it comes from our teachings. And so you're never really just the first, but for, to get to the first, you have to break a lot of glass ceilings. Then you also have to face off the reality that the challenge is not just entering into workplaces, it's staying there because the entrenched racism that's often within those places that has ostracized you in the first place, now that you're in the workplace, now you're expected to deal with it and can counter. When I was a teacher, for example, I wasn't just expected to teach kids, I was expected to teach all my colleagues as well. And then I was also expected to teach every single school around me dozens in fact none of them had indigenous teachers so they are suddenly expecting me to come in and I was doing four times the job as everybody else and any indigenous employee will tell you that being the first of something is remarkable but you're expected to do four five times the job as everybody else and that hasn't changed much in fact that's probably exactly how it is today look at your fellow indigenous employees around you and I guarantee to you they are doing two to three times the job as you are and that's not to say that they're better that's not to say that you know you're not doing enough it's simply to say that that's the reality of where we are at so for many indigenous peoples we're entering into workplaces but there's a whole heap of challenges that go with that so that's hopeful but it's also a challenge some of the other opportunities i see as i see more awareness i see more consciousness involving the issues that come out of the treatment, the violent treatment of Indigenous peoples. And I think the evidence is within this awareness around unmarked graves. You know, 20 years ago, that probably wouldn't have been a story on the media. Uh, I think back to how Indigenous peoples are treated when we were out marching in the streets during Idle No More, for example. During Idle No More, there was tens of thousands of people on Canadian streets talking about peace and treaty rights and talking about how do we live together. Like the most remarkable social justice in, in history since the civil rights movement, frankly, tens of thousands of people marching, talking about love and honesty and commitment. But yet media, and I work in the media now, so I know where this is coming from. They were too interested in covering some monkey in an Ikea store in Toronto, which is inane and stupid and not worth your time as a story. But what is worth your time is tens of thousands of people marching on the streets talking about the future of Canada. But the media now, I think, is more cognizant, more invested, more engaged. If you look at the work at the Winnipeg Free Press, where I work, for example, you know, we almost every day there is a cover story on Indigenous peoples. Brian Pallister, who is the premier of Manitoba, was recently just challenged and eventually resigned because of his extremely offensive and inappropriate and factually incorrect comments around Indigenous peoples. That's the first time in Canadian history that's ever happened. Normally, Canada builds statues and names buildings and, and honors people who are racist against Indigenous peoples and says, look at these heroes. And you're like, they're not really heroes. Like, they are quite racist against Indigenous peoples. Like, maybe we shouldn't hold them up as uh, people that we want to teach our children as someone they want to be like. But now, premiers, when they say factually incorrect, offensive comments around Indigenous peoples, they can't stay in office. That's an interesting development. That's happened in the most recent times in, in 2021. What I would also say is we, we hear more from Indigenous peoples more than ever, and particularly Indigenous women, which is one of the very first times in history that we're doing. We have much more, a longer way to go. We have particularly a long way to go because I think, I still think that this society doesn't want to hear from Indigenous LGBTQ communities. They aren't 
prepared or interested or engaged to want to hear from the experiences of diverse sexualities or diverse genders or, you know, frankly, some of our teachings that talk about queerness, uh, like the clan system, and talk about who we are as a society that we aren't built just in terms of male, female, or uh, white, brown, or red, or black, or, that we're built in these kinds of ways that are complex and interesting and complicated. So I see more progress happening, but then I also see how much work there is left to do. Last question. What actions would you suggest to Canadians to progress reconciliation in our country? The first is read, listen, listen twice as much before you speak, as my uncle says, and then talk to people afterwards. You know, once you're given a gift, it's like when somebody hands you some food or, or, you know, hands you a meal or hands you something you've worked really hard on an art project, for example, or a piece of painting. You're expected to do something with it, put it up at the wall, eat the food, hand it off to somebody else and share it. So when you listen and when you read and when you think, then talk to your children, you know, talk to who they are and ask them questions of what do you know? What you may find is that your children know more about situations in the country, these experiences than you do. Because, you know, children are smart and children are innovative and, and many children have really radical teachers, really smart teachers and read magazines and online sources and social media is probably that great equalizer where you can hear many different views in many different directions. So your children may be more educated on the issues of residential schools and reconciliation and treaty rights than even you are. And so... You may learn something. You may be able to talk about things around the kitchen table. Then you can make some decisions. What do we do about it now? How do we commit to ourselves in the work that we do in our in our workplaces, in our donations, in our voting? How do we act accordingly? Then you may want to take a step up and you may want to say, how do I volunteer? How do I be part of the solution? How do I commit to uh, asking my MLA or my MP to become engaged on this issue? Because it's not just about you. It's about saying, how does your community change? How does the world around you become affected by what you now know? Because you can't unknow what you know. You know it. And once you know it, you realize that something can be done about it. And that means, you know, writing emails, participating in marches. That means, you know, taking your workplace and doing an activity. What I say to people in workplaces is look around. If you see no Indigenous faces in your workplace, that's the first problem right there, is that your workplace should resemble the community in which you come from. And if you do not have in Manitoba, for example, 20% uh, of the population is Indigenous. If you don't have 20% of your workforce that's Indigenous, frankly, you have no right, no ability, or no legitimacy to talk about representing community. So how do you change that? You can bring speakers in, you can spend time with people, you can hire, you can train, you can talk about who you are as a workplace and what you want. What I've said to the Winnipeg Free Press, for example, is you have no right to talk about reconciliation with any legitimacy until you have a newsroom that has 20% Indigenous peoples. And they're not there yet, but they're moving, they're changing, and they're growing. And uh, same could be said about people from the Islamic community, same could be said about LGBTQ. Those are the kinds of commitments that we should make. Those are just tangible, simple ways to think about it. We should reflect the community that we come from as one step in which I'm not saying that's going to bring reconciliation or equity, or I'm going to say that's a beginning point where you can begin to talk. I also would say that, you know, it's your obligation if you don't see Indigenous faces in your workplace, 
is then go out of your workplace, go get to know the community, go get to know the people that you work with or the clients or the communities that you work with and try to engage them in the terms they want to be connected to. Don't enforce your belief. Like people say, well, you know, why don't indigenous peoples want to reconcile with me? Because we have 150 years of division, we have 150 years of violence, and no wonder nobody trusts, particularly, frankly, Indigenous peoples trusting non-Indigenous peoples is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of kindness, a lot of humility, a lot of generosity, because you have 150 years of those who have come before you that have perpetrated violence. And so when you begin to act differently, it's right to not trust you. But when you earn your trust and you come to the gatherings and you and you stand and you listen then that trust begins that trust process starts and it may take 150 years for us to all trust one another and work together and commit to one another in a kind and generous way but that 150 years will be way more just kind peaceful than the past 150 years has been Ninanaskaman, and thank you again, Dr. Sinclair. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, miigwech, Kona. I'm very honored to be a part of this series that you're doing. I also really encourage everybody to wear an orange shirt on that day of National Reconciliation because it honors the work of residential school survivors and Phyllis Webstat, who started the Orange Shirt Day project, which recognizes the resilience of survivors and the important gifts that survivors have to give us. Check out Orange Shirt Day so that you can understand of why people are wearing orange shirts on the National Day of Reconciliation, uh, because it connects together. So that's a really important teaching uh, that you can learn a little bit. Wear an orange shirt on that day. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.